0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Wrestleomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It's Friday, October 16, 2020. Broadcasting from high atop. On the third floor of the WrestleNomics headquarters. Broadcasting from the WrestleNomics studio, which is all located in the financial district of Buffalo, New York. The neighbors not yelling at each other yet, but we'll keep you updated. WQ3 is just two weeks away. The big debut for new Chief Financial Officer Christina Salen. That happens on Thursday, October 29th. We'll be previewing Q3 in depth later in the program. I've spent all day today, deep inside of a Google spreadsheet. My body was in the chair, but my mind was in the rows and the columns, sifting through the data for 396 wrestlers who have had 10 or more WWE main roster matches as the WWE Developmental Research Project. It rages on. I will not be talking about that today, but eventually, someday, one day, We will be talking about OVW, HWA, Deep South, FCW, NXT, the Performance Center, A-B Breakdowns, Primary Developmental Systems, Non-Universe Developmental Experience, all that, eventually, someday, one day. But first... WWE has extended its deal... With the Amway Center in Orlando to continue operating the Thunderdome tapings out of the building. PW Insider was the first to break the story. Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, reports that the deal was made some weeks ago. We know, thanks to earlier reporting from John Alba, who obtained the agreement between WB and the Amway Center, that WB and the venue originally agreed to have WB there from August 14th all the way through the end of October. So about two and a half months. And for those two and a half months, it appears that WWE is paying $450,000. That would break down to about $200,000 per month. $200,000 per month, a pretty good deal for WWE. Now we don't know that the deal is the same as it was previously in terms of the fees. But I don't see why the, the fees would be a lot higher or even a lot different than what they were previously. Much more expensive are likely the costs related, the production costs related to having the Thunderdome experience there in the Amway Center, thanks to partners like the Famous Group. We'll be talking more about that cost later in the program as we preview Q3. Or rather, the Q3 report. Q3 has already come and gone. In other news, in the wrestling TV business... New York Times best-selling authors and entrepreneurs, Nikki Bella and Brie Bella, will be back in November for another season of Total Bellas. The most recent season of Total Bellas uh, aired from April 2nd to June 11th of this year, completely within Q2. And remember, this is Total Bellas, not to be confused with Total Divas, yet another WWE-based e-network reality series featuring the Bellas. But that was season five uh, from April to June. And normally throughout the seasons of of these reality series, whether it's Total Divas, Total Bellas, or Miz and Mrs., the viewership from season to season generally declines but not in Season 5 of Total Bellas. The viewership for Season 5 was up over Season 4. The average total audience was 505,000 viewers, with a peak of 690,000 viewers for the season finale. For some perspective, 690,000 viewers is more total viewers and this is live and same day. more total viewers than watched NXT this week, or last week. Not the week before, though. Week before did over 700,000 viewers for NXT. But rare that, uh, that one of these reality series seasons does a better average viewership than the season prior. So in other words, Total Bells did well uh, last season from April to June. Now, another season is on its way. How much money does W make for these reality series, by the way? You know, what are they really worth? In an average year, it seems like they're worth somewhere between 20 and 30 million dollars of revenue. Uh, The reality series revenue is reported within the media segment, within the other segment of the media. Let's call it the media division. 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 There's media division, live events division, consumer products division. And within each of those divisions, there are a number of segments that we get some additional detail on, at least for the revenue, not for the profit, though. They don't want to break out that much detail. But uh, there is an other segment within media, which is also where, as as astute Russell Onyx listeners know, that is also where the, the Saudi Arabia money gets reported. But it is also where the reality TV series money gets reported. What else is in there? W Studios, Home Entertainment, whatever is left of that. Uh, when there was Mixed Match Challenge, Mixed Match Challenge was in there. Maybe there's some podcast revenue in there as well now. So I've tried to unpack this segment in the past to estimate the Saudi Arabia revenue, and uh, which is about $50 million per event, by the way. But it looks like in the past that the reality TV series are worth somewhere between maybe as low as... $670,000 per episode to maybe as much as just over a million per episode. This last quarter though, Q2, believe it or not, there's only $4.5 million reported in the segment. There were 11 episodes of Total Bella's that quarter. If you divide 11 in, into uh, uh divide $4.5 million into 11 different pieces, you get an average of 410 thousand dollars which is much lower much lower than the, epi- than the estimated uh, revenue per episode price that I gotten in the past and that's even we're not even trying to make an estimate to count any of that four and a half million dollars towards W Studios or home entertainment so uh, I'm really perplexed by that but but anyway in the world of independent wrestling this week In a report from Post Wrestling, our friends at Post Wrestling, Ring of Honor is taking certain precautions for its current set of TV tapings as it relates to people who worked at The Collective. What was The Collective? The Collective is a series of independent wrestling events that were originally scheduled for the WrestleMania weekend. Of course, WrestleMania weekend in Tampa Bay did not happen. Those events were rescheduled this past weekend in Indianapolis, Indiana. Indiana. I don't know if there were any COVID precautions, Well, I don't know what the COVID precautions were. I'm sure there were some precautions. You could see uh, people were certainly wearing masks and seemed to be socially distanced uh, in the audience. We've got at least three wrestlers uh, who have tested positive for COVID who worked the events. Uh, Ring of Honor saying that they they are not expecting to use any of the performers Uh, On its tapings, as originally scheduled, who had worked the events last weekend in Indianapolis. Ring of Honor's chief operating officer, Joe Koff, gave the following statement to Post Wrestling, saying, While Ring of Honor does not publicly discuss specific internal decisions, ROH is taking every measure to preserve the integrity of its rigorous health and safety protocol for the upcoming tapings. Um, I've asked around a little bit. Uh, I know some people who worked some of the shows on the weekend. I have not heard of uh, any kind of requirement for the wrestlers to have COVID tests in advance of the events. I have not heard that there are that there were testing procedures set up by the promoters themselves. And by the way, for some some frame of reference, as the pandemic rages on ac- across the globe. Let's bust out the uh, rworldindata.org chart. And let's look at deaths. Let's look at daily new confirmed COVID deaths uh adjusted for population per million people. And you may be thinking to yourself, you know, WWE's doing wrestling. They're doing their shows in the Amway Center at the Thunderdome. AEW's doing their shows in Jacksonville. You know, CML just did their anniversario. No fans in attendance. Limited fans in attendance for AW in Jacksonville. No fans in attendance at the Thunderdome or in NXT's Capital Wrestling Center. Not in person anyway. Just screens of people present for WWE. New Japan, the G1 Climax rages on with limited Uh, fans in attendance by the hundreds and the thousands. According to the Cubs fan in in Mexico city, there was a proposal to get back to 30% capacity in Mexico. Mexico city said, no, too many infections still. But what is the state of the world when it comes to COVID? Again, let's look at deaths per capita. Let's not look at cases. Cases can be uh, misleading because of unconfirmed cases because of different Uh, availability of testing, different methods and applications of testing. So let's just look at deaths. Deaths seem like a good indicator of actual prevalence, especially when when we compare various regions to one another. I'm not sure what's happening with Mexico on this chart because it looks like they've added as of October 9th a lot of probable earlier deaths that were not accounted for earlier but let's go with a couple weeks back. You've got Mexico at about three people per million dying per day. United States at about two per million dying per day. United Kingdom, just under one. Japan, well under a te- like a tenth of a person per day. Let's put this in some more easy to understand terms. Taking the last seven day average for each of those four countries. Japan, United Kingdom, United States, and Mexico. I think we all got a pretty good idea, especially if, if you've been watching... Any of the G1. Lately, you've got an idea of what Japan seems to be like, right? We know Japan is generally doing better as far as COVID. If you've seen the shows, you know that uh, people are kind of socially distanced. Everybody's wearing a mask. There's no cheering or yelling or booing allowed. There's no yelling. There's just clapping. In the larger venues, there's over a thousand people there. But everybody's got masks on. There's no cheering. Only clapping. As far as COVID prevalence, Japan seems to be the nearest to being back to normal. And let's throw Canada into this consideration too. as another major market where there's a lot of wrestling happening, right? So Japan, look at everything as a factor of Japan. How much worse is the death rate in all these other countries compared to Japan? Canada, it's 14 times worse in Japan per capita. Average over the last seven days. 14 times worse than Japan. Is Canada. United Kingdom, 37 times the death rate of Japan. 37 times, UK, is the death rate of Japan. United States, 53 times the death rate of Japan. The United States is 53 times the death rate of Japan. This is adjusted for population per capita. Mexico, 61 times the death rate of Japan. Japan, where people are still social distancing, not even cheering. We've got people cheering here in the United States. Here, where it's 53 times worse than Japan. I'm being told by other correspondents here in the Russellnomics headquarters that while there is not any detectable yelling happening in the financial neighborhood. There have been reports of yelling happening from within the WrestleNomics studios. Again, these are reports that I'm getting from other correspondents here at the WrestleNomics headquarters. And this has resulted in a new philosophical question that is being pondered, which is, If a man yells in the woods and no one is around to hear him yell, is it still a podcast? Tweet your answers at Russellomics on Twitter. People are saying that Russellomics is not only a wrestling podcast, but a comedy podcast as well. I'm not sure what they mean by that. That's what people are saying. I, I can only go by what people say is what some say. That notwithstanding, let's have a viewership update and look at the world of WWE Draft and see what happened this week as uh, Raw and SmackDown both had Draft episodes. Did it pop rating like Drafts have in the past? Because they have in the past. Um, we're going to look at the draft episode's going back to 2016, the 2016 draft which coincided with the move of SmackDown from USA Network on Thursday night to Live SmackDown Live every week for the first time on a permanent basis ever when it moved to Tuesday night Live. Also, on the USA Network in 2016, this also coincided with the beginning of the well the restart of the brand split which had not been happening for a number of years before that point. Really, a move in hindsight that the uh, you know I might not like, and you might may or may not like, uh, in terms of your taste in programming. But I think the decision now, looking back on it, to uh, strengthen SmackDown, give it a separate roster, has really paid off in terms of look at what WWE was able to deal out in its TV rights in its negotiations in 2018. Now getting a lot more money for SmackDown than it probably would have gotten otherwise if it had not done things like give SmackDown its own separate roster by restarting the brand split again. But anyway, did the draft this time, pop a rating like it has in the past. So what I, what I did to try to answer that question is take uh, the rating, take the, I'm doing the P2 viewership here. Um, I did not pull out the key demo, but I imagine the key demo is pretty consistent with uh, the effects here in terms of the percentage of change, which is what we're going to talk about here. So what what I'm looking at here is the, Take the given P2+, plus the total viewership, of the draft episode in question. Compare that viewership number to the median of the four episodes of the program. We're dealing with both SmackDown and Raw here. Take the total audience of that episode and compare it to the median of the four weeks prior. Was the draft episode higher or lower than the median of the four weeks prior? The 2016 draft episode on SmackDown July 19, 2016, up 47% versus the four weeks prior for SmackDown. Huge pop. Remember, there hadn't been a brand split for years up until that point. Now it's more normal, more regular. WWE did drafts for years after that, uh, shortly after WrestleMania in the April of 2017 and 18 and 19, with some draft action happening on both Raw and SmackDown. Or maybe it was called the Superstar Shakeup, whatever. Uh, so the Raw episode for 2017, April 2017, up five percent from the median of the four prior. Five percent for Raw in 2017, eleven percent up for SmackDown. So a good a five percent pop for Raw in 2017, eleven percent pop for SmackDown in 2017. The following year. At right about the same time in April 2018, an 8%, even better, an 8% pop for Raw, 8%. Only a 4% pop for SmackDown. SmackDown was the following night. We're still in the uh, USA Network era for SmackDown here. 2019, again, just after WrestleMania in April, 0% pop for Raw, 0%. The following night, SmackDown, 0% pop. 0%. Did nothing in 2019. Maybe that was the superstar shakeup. But anyway, there's another, I think this is a draft, in 2019, in October, how many times can you go to the well? A negative 1% pop for Raw. Negative 1 for Raw, October 2019. And then for SmackDown, of course this is just... This is the second episode on Fox now. The first episode on Fox is a huge number. We're dealing with median here, so it kind of gets around that massive pop uh, for the week prior, but still up 16% for SmackDown for the draft episode on October 11th, 2019. Up 16% for SmackDown, down 1%, pretty normal rating for Raw. So that brings us to this year. Again, just to reflect, Raw in prior years doing up 5%, up 8%, nothing. And negative one. Then SmackDown does that giant pop. 47% in 2016. Up 11%. Up 4%. 0%. 16%. Okay. This year, Raw, October the 12th. This just past Monday. Up 10% versus the previous four median. Up 10% for Raw. So a good good number for Raw on the draft episode this year. Up 10%. SmackDown just up 2% this past Friday. Versus the median of the previous four SmackDowns. So, SmackDown doing a pretty regular number. Raw doing pretty good, especially if you compare that to last year, where it did nothing. And, and uh, the, the April before that, 2019, where it, again, did nothing. We'll talk more about viewership for Raw and SmackDown later. Wednesday, by the way, AEW and NXT doing pretty similar numbers to what they did the week pre- previous. I don't see any, uh, I don't think there was any huge story here. Uh, AEW finishing 15th on cable on Wednesday. And NXT falling just short of the top 50 again, as it did last week, at 51. AEW doing a pretty normal 0.3 in the demo, 826,000 viewers. NXT doing a 0.17 in the demo, a 651,000 viewers. For NXT, those are very similar numbers to the week prior. For AEW, up... Over 70,000 viewers. Oh yes, the P50 Plus for AEW was higher than than it usually has been in the last few weeks. Of course, this was for the one-year anniversary of Dynamite. We've had one year of Wednesday Night Wars. And in my pursuit to uh, follow the viewership metrics that matter, I urge WrestleMetricians everywhere to focus more on the ranking of a given program on its given night. Again, mentioning that AEW did uh, finish at number 15 on Wednesday, NXT at 51, Raw this past week, finishing at number 5. For Raw, that is very normal. Uh, Q3 had averaged a number 5 ranking. SmackDown this past Friday, though, only ranked at number 3 among its competitors on Network Primetime. Compared to the rest of the cable programs, though, it's consistently doing very well, maybe only getting beaten out by one or two cable programs here and there. And in fact, SmackDown throughout the entirety of Q3, every single week, it was either number one among its competition on Network Primetime or tied for number one. Tide, it may have been edged out by the other programs from the showbiz daily data that we have. Uh, we get to a single decimal place. So we know that, uh, for example, SmackDown did a point six. We don't know it if it did a... A point five seven or a point six three, actually point six two. Yeah. So in all likelihood, it has been edged out by other programs, but it's close enough to number one that it has not been beaten by an entire tenth of a ratings point. Another metric I want to watch closely: the P eighteen to forty nine in air quotes, scare quotes, wrestling audience share. In terms of, let's imagine that. Every wrestling program has as its responsibility to deliver as many key demo viewers as possible. And let's compare what the contribution is of each program by percent to that total key demo wrestling audience share. If this doesn't make sense, maybe it will make sense as I go further and explain what's happening so far in October for the total audience, the total wrestling audience. That is confusing when I say total audience, isn't it? but let's talk about what happened in October in the key demo for the wrestling audience share. Raw is going to count more here because it's three hours long. The other three programs, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW, two hours long, of course, a piece. So because Raw is this three hour program, it's one hour longer than the other programs. It gets counted a little bit more relative to the number of hours of programming that it's delivering. So if you want to Get deep into the math here. Basically, what I'm doing is taking the key demo for a given week and multiplying the key demo for, for a program. Let's say SmackDown did a 0.6. I'm multiplying SmackDown's 0.6 by 2. That's what it gets for the week, which would be 1.2. For Raw, let's say it does a 0.5. I'm multiplying that by 3 because Raw is 3 hours long. That results in a 1.5 for Raw. Anyway, the percentage of the weekly P1849 viewers raw is delivering among all the wrestling programs is 47% almost half almost half raw delivering 47% of the key demo viewers in a given week in October so far Smackdown delivering 33% one-third of the key demo viewers for the wrestling audience AEW Dynamite delivering 18% and NXT delivering nine half of that nine percent AEW doubling NXT for key demo viewers as we just mentioned last week, or this week rather, a 0.3, 0.30 for AEW, 0.17 for NXT. So again, for Raw, 47% of the key demo delivery. For SmackDown, a third 33% of the key demo delivery. AEW, 18%. NXT, 9%. How does that relate to the amount of money in the wrestling TV universe, at least in the US, that each of these programs are getting? And I think if we think about this in this way, we'll get into what the comparison is in just a moment. But I think we need to look at the difference between the percentage of the wrestling audience and the key demo that I'm delivering as a program relative to the percentage of the wrestling TV rights revenue that I'm getting for that delivery. And that may tell us something about the future value of these wrestling programs in terms of their future TV rights contracts those set to be negotiated within the next few years. So Raw, again, 47% of the key demo delivery, 49%, a little bit higher, 49% of the wrestling revenue for its TV rights. So I should mention here, average annual value for Raw, $265 million on an average annual basis. SmackDown, $205 million on an average annual basis. AEW, $43.5 million on an average annual basis. We don't really know what NXT is getting. I've discussed that and written about that on WrestleNomics.com. We're going to go with $30 million. So Raw, 47% of the key demo delivery, 49% a little bit higher of the revenue. SmackDown, 33% of the key demo audience, 33%, 38% of the revenue. So SmackDown also higher in revenue relative to its share of the key demo in the, for wrestling programs that it's delivering. AEW, 18% of the key demo, only 8% of the revenue, over-delivering relative to its revenue by more than double, right? Double 8% would be 16%. It's delivering 18%, 18%. NXT, delivering 9% of the key demo, if it's getting $30 million per year. of the revenue, so not quite double, but over-delivering by about a third. Are AEW Dynamite and NXT setting themselves up for a sizable increase in TV rights value? We'll see. We'll watch these metrics as the weeks and months and quarters and years roll on. We will keep our eyes peeled as well for any uh, sports rights deals that are completed in the near future. Baseball on TBS already getting a 1.4x increase, a 40% increase over its previous deal with TBS/Warner Media. Warner Media, the partner for AEW as well. NFL rights set to be renegotiated soon, maybe before the end of the year. The biggest player in the whole ecosystem. I'm most interested, though, in, in the tier of sports properties that are just below the NFL, uh, the NBA. Major League Baseball, maybe even hockey. Maybe sports like car racing and golf and tennis and soccer. What kind of increases in TV rights do sports like that get? Sports that, like pro wrestling, are live and people are eager to watch them live, but they are not the three or four biggest sports properties in the country. Are sports properties like those getting increases Well, then wrestling is probably going to continue to get increases. Are they getting massive increases? Well, maybe wrestling will get big increases. Are they getting moderate increases? Well, maybe wrestling will get moderate increases. Is the bottom falling out and are they getting downgrades? Well, maybe then wrestling will be getting downgrades. But I would be surprised if they get downgrades. But we'll see. And I was thinking earlier, maybe a good analogy, you can tell me if this is not a good analogy, but maybe a good analogy, a good way to think about why are properties like sports properties so valuable to TV networks? Why are they willing to pay so much and continue to pay more and more for them over time? When, oh my God, the the viewership is declining and people are cutting the cord. The viewership is lower and the number of pay TV subscribers... Is getting lower. Why do TV networks continue to pay you know, multiples on what they used to pay for these TV programs that fewer people are watching and fewer people have access to? How can this possibly make sense? Well, let's assume, for the sake of argument at least, that for all these years prior, when pay TV TV networks had these sports properties, let's assume that they were underpaying for them. And these sports properties were more dependent on the TV networks than the TV networks were dependent on the sports properties. Not that they weren't dependent on them, not that they didn't get a lot of value out of sports properties, but the sports properties were a little bit more dependent on them. The balance was different. And now let's think about maybe something we're more comfortable thinking about there being value with. We know how successful Netflix is. We know that Disney Plus is getting a lot of subscribers. We know there's a number of other popular shows that people watch on streaming services, not on pay TV, that old man's medium. And now let's ask, what makes what's the quality that makes a given program valuable to a streaming service? What makes a program valuable to a streaming service? It should be fairly obvious that the program is highly viewed on the streaming service. You know, that's obvious. That makes sense. Okay, the, the programs that get watched the most on the streaming service are probably the ones that are most valuable to the streaming services. Okay, now let's apply that to old-fashioned pay TV, old-fashioned cable and satellite. What are the most valuable kinds of programs on pay TV, the programs that are the most viewed among all the other programs that are on pay TV, especially if people are watching those programs live and are more susceptible to watch the advertisements. What are the most popular or most viewed programs on pay TV? Sports and news. And when I say sports, WWE programs are among the most viewed programs on cable still. And I think that maybe that's just a point that hasn't been emphasized enough. While we've been going through this multi-year story about how W Raw and SmackDown have declined so greatly in the viewership, which they have throughout the lifetime of those programs. But we are not studying the wider picture that would allow us to see, and if you do enough copying and pasting of, of Showbiz Daily, you will find Raw is still among the most viewed programs on cable in any given week. And especially if we're talking about programs that recur on a weekly basis. And especially if we talk about programs that are being aired year round, for sure. Monday night football does way bigger ratings than raw. It beats it every time by multiples, but Monday night football only airs from September to December. So to get get back to my earlier point, we're sort of trying to talk about, Streaming services, and what's valid on streaming services, of course, it's the most popular programs, the most viewed programs on streaming services. You think about pay TV, think about a TV network. I think we have overemphasized advertising as a revenue stream for TV networks, in our, at least in our wrestling conversations we have. And talking about the, the key demo, and as, as AEW has come to life here, may have only uh, sort of diverted our attention and misled us to, to, to forget that pay TV is a subscription service. And even Fox, which you can get over the air. I don't subscribe to traditional cable. I can tune into Fox right now and watch Smackdown. It's airing right now. Tune to channel 29, WUTV, the Sinclair owned, my, my local Fox affiliate. And I can watch it for free. But we all know that that's not the way that the vast majority of people who watch network programming like Fox, that's not the way that most people watch uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox and so on, they watch it primarily through their pay TV, through their cable or satellite. And guess what? Cable and satellite pay those networks to carry that stuff that you can get for free over the air with an antenna, because it's just too inconvenient and friction, I guess. It's way easier to just turn on my TV and switch around to the channels, just like I do every other channel, and just type in the number, bang, I'm watching the the program, rather than having to mess around with an antenna. Cable networks are paying to carry Fox. They're paying to carry USA Network. They're paying to carry TNT, a subscription service. It is a more complicated subscription service than streaming services are, which are direct-to-consumer. And yes, they generate advertising revenue as well because they're showing you commercials. And yes, cable and satellite subscriptions are on the decline. They are trending downward. Ten years ago in the U.S., there were only maybe 8% of households that didn't have cable or satellite. Only 8% 10 years ago today, we've got 25 to 30% of households don't have cable. Is pay TV dying? I don't know, but there's still some 80 million households that have a cable or satellite subscription. And I know some of you know how expensive those things are. I bet they cost more than your Netflix subscription. I bet they cost more than your Netflix subscription, plus your Disney plus subscription, plus your W network subscription, plus your new Japan world subscription. So I think as the years go on, things will get complicated, but the value for the most popular programs, especially if you have to consume them live, like sports and news, will continue to be quite strong. And whether rights eventually can be doled out to digital streamers or something like that sometime in the future, I don't know. We'll see, but that will probably be a bigger challenge for the media companies, for the distributor companies to figure out than for the companies who are creating and providing the content. Be back with the WWE Q3 earnings report preview, the preview show in just a moment. Here's some unforgettable audio from the Q2 earnings call. This exchange between light shed analyst, Brandon Ross and WWE CEO and chairman, Vincent Kennedy McMahon.
1: First, um, why do you think, these are for Vince, why do you think AEW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? And then, based on your commentary last quarter, it seemed you had a strategy for fixing Raw that indicated patience in, quote, getting over some newer talent. Did you abandon that plan in firing Heyman? And more broadly, why did you um, fire Heyman? And uh, lastly, um, given Paul's recent relative success with NXT, do you think he could be of help on Raw and or SmackDown in an elevated role? Thank you. That was a lot. Um... I'm sorry. I, I, we could break it down if you want. <laughs> but just first, why do you think AEW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? I think some of those are new. Something that's new uh, and what happened and it's sucked to us to make Raw and SmackDown feel more useful. Uh, that is where we're going. Um, and I just, as far as continuing on, i I said what was new and building characters, you always have to build characters, uh, constantly. And it seems to me that, you know, as far as Paul DeBeck helping out on Raw and SmackDown, uh, that happens. So it's all hands on, deck in terms of uh, all of that we do, as far as the name is concerned. Uh, he, did, he did, I thought, a very, very good job uh, in terms of your creativity.
0: And by the way, I'm not on the pay TV or the pay audio bundle. I am not even in the ad revenue business. I'm not on the ad model. There are no ad rates. There are no ads in this program, at least for now, except for this right now. I am on the member support model. If you appreciate the work that WrestleNomics does at WrestleNomics.com and on this podcast, consider supporting on Patreon at Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics.com. Some people contribute $10 a month. Some people contribute 5 Whatever you wish to contribute will be greatly appreciated. The recurring revenue does go a long, long way. If you can't support monetarily, share the podcast, share the articles, tell somebody about WrestleNomics. Tell them if they want to truly understand the wrestling business and or win arguments on Twitter. They've got to be paying attention to WrestleNomics. WWQ-3 covering the period from July 1st, 2020 to September 30th. The documents will drop uh, in the just after the market closes. The documents will drop on corporate.w.com on October 29th. That's a Thursday. The conference call will happen at 5 p.m. Eastern. So what are the big issues that we might learn about on October 29th? The biggest unknown factor that has made it so hard to anticipate Just what WWE's Q3 finances are going to look like is that we don't have great sense for what the production cost is related to the Thunderdome. As we mentioned earlier, we know that the the monthly cost of being at the Amway Center, just being at the venue, is about $200,000 a month. That's just being at the venue, though. That Thunderdome has got to be very expensive. The Performance Center allowed WWE to save a lot of money relative to the cost of running Raw and SmackDown at major sports arenas, touring in and out of venues, paying a bunch of stagehands to set up and tear down. So I believe Raw and SmackDown in the pre-COVID era cost about $1 million per event, per Raw, each Raw, each SmackDown, $1 million, roughly. I'm I'm sure there's a great deal of variance from situation to situation, a lot of factors involved. But I think that's a good ballpark. About a million dollars in expense. Probably including payroll. To run one Raw or SmackDown. Pre-COVID. Then COVID hits March 13th. WWE goes to the Performance Center. A fixed location. They're often even doing sets of tapings. Taping multiple shows within the course of a few days. A lot of savings there at the Performance Center. The entirety of Q2 from April 1st to June 30th, Q2 was more profitable than most stock analysts analyzing covering W stock expected. Analysts did not expect W2 report being as profitable as they were. They underestimated the savings of running at the Performance Center. That's right, during COVID, during the peak of COVID in the United States, WB was more profitable than it was in the quarter before COVID. And in a way, because of situations that ended up happening because of COVID. COVID forcing them into the performance center where the costs were much lower. Not a situation they wanted to be in, but a cheaper situation. And TV rights fees did not lower. They, were, they didn't change. TV rights fees are guaranteed fees that are guaranteed to increase throughout the lifetime of the contract. That's right, TV rights fees are not tied to viewership. TV rights fees are fixed over time, and they are fixed to gradually increase with each, I don't know if it's with each payment, or with each episode, or with each quarter, but they do increase over time. That is the case for the U.S. contracts, and I think that's the case for a number of the international contracts. So they're in the situation of the performance zone where they're saving money, but then... As you just heard on the Q2 call, that happened at the end of July. Vince McMahon is getting grilled about what's happening with the trends in in the ratings for Raw and SmackDown. He didn't in that response that he just heard. But in in other exchanges with analysts in the Q&A session, he cited the lack of a live audience as being a factor about why the ratings were where they were. Even though AEW and NXT are dealing with similar problems. But nonetheless, that notwithstanding... Clearly, one of the responses to the decline in ratings for Ron SmackDown was that we decided to do this Thunderdome to try to... It's not a replacement for live fans, but it's something like live fans being there. The ring's surrounded by all these Zoom calls, basically. All, the, all these wrestling fans, and yes, we know many of their faces are are, are duplicated across many of the screens. That notwithstanding, I think, I think the Thunderdome has generally been received... Uh, as as an improvement over whatever situation they had on their hands in the Performance Center, where you had NXT wrestlers, you know, training recruits trying to act like fans. Now, granted, they have no genuine crowd, no no human crowd reactions happening right now in the Thunderdome at all. There's canned crowd noise. I don't think they're using any real audio from the fans who are streaming in. But anyway. The Thunderdome has to be a great deal more expensive than running TV out of the Performance Center. But by how much is not known. The Thunderdome debuted on August 22nd. So that's a little bit less than half of Q3. That's something like 45% of Q3 is in the Thunderdome era. About 55% of it in the PC era. And similarly, we've got the Capital Wrestling Center now happening at the Performance Center for NXT. That, though, started just after the end of Q3. That was on October 4th when executive vice president, Paul Levesque unveiled the Capital wrestling center, which is basically just a, a Thunderdome in the performance center. So the Thunderdome is not something that WWE is providing all on its own with its own in-house employees. No, WWE has partnered with the famous group to provide the Thunderdome. There's also reports that they're working with two other companies to do this called quince imaging and frozen mountain Don't ask me to unpack exactly who's doing what. But as some listeners know, I did an an estimate for WWE for Q3. And I estimated that I could see WWE spending as much on the Thunderdome as they were spending pre-COVID. So basically, I I modeled in pre-COVID production costs in order to do the Thunderdome. And that results in WWE still being quite profitable, but not as profitable as they would have been if they had stayed in the Performance Center, but such is the cost of answering to scrutiny about declining ratings. And speaking of which, this will probably be a more comfortable uh, earnings conference call and Q&A session with the analysts this time around in Q3 than it was in the the previous call. I'm pretty sure that the Thunderdome is going to be touted as this big success, both from a production standpoint and and from a ratings standpoint and i think it's hard to dispute that it, it was a positive factor in how uh, viewership has performed since i think there's other factors there's return of roman reigns who had been out since march there's the heel turn of roman reigns who's been you know probably to top face for a number of years now and the fans have largely booed him which was not the in- intended reaction from WB. But he's finally turned heel in front of no fans, of course. No, no fan reactions, anyway. And I think that's generated some interest. And SmackDown ratings have mildly improved. And as for Raw, uh, July was not so great. But August did a lot better. There was a big uh, jump for the post-SummerSlam episode. Bigger, bigger jump for post-SummerSlam than there had been in previous years after SummerSlam. And myself and others were pretty concerned when Monday Night Football was about to start but here we are in September. Raw has now faced 5 weeks of NFL football head-to-head and despite that competition, Raw's doing better in September than it had in July. Now, I think there's another additional psychological factor that's happening for WWE viewers too. Sort of a wider consumer trend. I think we've just sort of settled into the idea that life with COVID is not ending anytime soon. Maybe some viewers were deciding they were just going to take a break and tune back in when things were back to normal. And I think we all shared this experience back in March where, you know, we would just do this for a couple weeks and stay home and socially distance and things would be really weird and it would just be those couple of weeks that we would look back on years from now and be like, wow, remember that, that time? And now here we are in October and it's clear life is not going to get back to normal anytime soon and probably not until there is a widely distributed vaccine and no one knows when that's going to be and maybe we're taking a temporary break from W programming waiting for things to get back to normal and just realize well things are never going to get back to normal anytime soon anyway and uh maybe you know, just lean back into some of my old habits so i think that's part of what's happening no doubt though you can you can alert roman stan twitter roman is a draw i think roman's a factor and i think on the call things will be easier for vince too in the sense that I think, you know, these analysts who cover a lot of other media businesses are probably well aware of all the anxiety that's happening right now around sports viewership being down. And these media analysts are probably also aware that, despite sports viewership being down, it probably doesn't mean it's that huge of a threat to the value of sports TV rights. So, the, the, so this may even be discussed on the call. You can kind of just point to it and say, "Hey, look, you know, NFL's down and NBA is down, and we're, if we're down a little bit. So what?" But in fact, we just had a pretty good Q3. We, we rebounded. From Q2 a little bit. Now they're nowhere near where they were even in Q1, but at least the bleeding stopped. Also on this call will be the debut of w's new chief financial officer, the former CFO for Etsy, Christina Salen. She joined WE officially in, in August. She replaces the interim CFO, member of the board of directors, Frank A. Riddick III who served for a short time in place of George Berrios, who was terminated along with Michelle Wilson, the two co-presidents, back in January. And now Christina Salen takes over, essentially taking over Berrios' role. And I expect she's going to have a a slightly less of a role than Berrios had, but the press release makes it clear that she's going to be the other key person on the call, along with Vince. So I'm curious to see if, is Salen going to, to become this key figure public-facing figure for investors like Berrios was, or will essentially the person who is replacing former co-president Michelle Wilson, will Nick Kahn, who is now the new WB chief revenue officer and president, he has president in his title, Salem does not, or will Kahn uh, have more of a public-facing role? Who's going to go to the conferences, the big media conferences? A lot of these things I'm raising here are not, not going to be things that are necessarily going to be answered on October 29th, but over time. But Salem will certainly be the key person in charge of W's finances and its reporting methods. Will she choose to change W's reporting methods? So, something that will certainly matter to me. W's reporting methods have not been consistent over the entire time of its that it's been a publicly traded company. It's changed quite a bit over the years. Most recently, changing in, I think it was 2017, within the Barrios era. Right now, we've got three divisions, media, live events, and consumer products. And within those three divisions, those three divisions are broken up into a number of segments. It's 11 segments in total. Will W Finances under and be more granular or less granular? Will the key performance indicators be changed? The key performance indicators are a great document, uh, especially if you're not too familiar with W Finances or Russell if you go to corporate.w.com and go to the investor section and click on, find the key performance indicators. It's a pretty digestible, readable document. It's just a number of, I think it's about 10 slides that tells you about things like TV ratings, uh, online video views, social media followers, yes. W network subscribers and attendance. Remember when, the, when people sold tickets to events. But anyway, will she change that document? That document has changed quite a bit over time. Could we see new reporting methods and new KPIs, a new format for the KPIs, even upon uh, two Thursdays from now? Maybe, who knows? Will Salen uh, choose to focus on, on the Barrios favored non-gap uh, profit metric, adjusted OIBDA? Barrios love to talk about adjusted OIBDA, basically a, a, a sort of made-up profit metric where we're taking OIBDA, but we're, we're excluding things that we, we think are best to exclude in, in, in our wisdom. You know, non-recurring measures like uh, executive stock compensation, uh, legal fees and other impairments, etc. Don't worry about it. Uh, w does report two other gap measures, which are called operating income and net income. But but will Salen accept adjusted EBITDA? Will she come up with some other profit metric? Will Will we be talking about EBITDA, maybe even? Who knows? Yeah, you know, at, at one time in, in W financial history, there was something called Profit contribution, that was reported as as one of the profit metrics. Other things I'm interested in for Q3. Did the W Network's paid subscribers, did it go up or down? W Network subs uh, on a year-over-year basis declined in each quarter in 2019 from the year prior. Subs in Q1 were down as well this year. Subs in Q2, on an average basis throughout the quarter of Q2, were down slightly. They're basically even. End period subs, though, were up slightly. So, a pretty much middling, neutral result in Q2. A ton of free subs, by the way, for WrestleMania. No more free tier now, or maybe there is, their special offers, what, I don't know. But WWE Network subscribers, will they be up or down in Q3? We've heard a lot about how, maybe it seems like consumers on, on a wire basis are just accepting uh, streaming technology and streaming products more, especially in this COVID era where, especially in the spring, a lot more people who are spending time at home, and people are still spending a lot of time at home, working from home. Speaking of the W network, will we get any hints or indications about how things are going, if they've begun, with Nick Khan getting any, any deals going to sell pay-per-view rights, to sell the pay-per-views off of the network, potentially, and onto the service of a major streaming player? Leading candidates generally are thought to be ESPN Plus, Peacock, maybe even Amazon Prime? Will we hear from Nikon, in fact, on the call? Other things I would be interested, interested to learn that maybe analysts could ask about, if you remember a, a year ago when NXT was moving off the WWE Network and onto the USA Network, the general belief was that the NXT on USA TV deal was for one or two years. Well, it's certainly not just for one year unless it was extended and, and nobody said anything publicly about it. So maybe it's a two-year deal. If it's a, if it's a two-year deal, that deal will expire sometime around September of 2021. Is that something that will be up for renegotiation soon? How does WWE feel about maybe getting a, a big upgrade for WNXT? I, I I know NXT is all about focusing on itself and not about any competitor. And that really... The motivations behind the decision to take NXT off the network and onto the USA Network was about building the long-term value to generate enormous uh, content rights fees like Raw and SmackDown generate. So how does WWE feel about how things are going in that regard? As we kind of talked about earlier, uh, in terms of the share of the key demo audience among wrestling programs that NXT is delivering, it's delivering a, a percentage of those viewers that is larger than the percentage of... Of revenue that it's getting, if it's getting, if it's really, if it really is getting, thirty million dollars a year. In other words, maybe there's a good argument that NXT should get a decent upgrade. In the consumer products area, uh, we saw last quarter, uh, venue merchandise, of course, has been wiped out. There's no events, so there's no merchandise being sold at events. In recent non-pandemic quarters, WWE would sell three to four million dollars worth of merchandise at venues per quarter. In Q2, there was no venue merchandise. WWE missed out on, on, the, on the WrestleMania weekend, which is usually a huge weekend for selling merchandise. But despite that, it seems like consumers compensated for that to some degree because online merchandise sales were up huge. Online merchandise sales, which usually are big in Q4 because of the holidays, but in, in, in quarters other than that, Online merchants have been selling about $7 million per quarter. $7 million per quarter. Q2, WWE sold almost $13 million in the quarter. It seems like WWE fans compensated for the lack of being at venues or the lack of being at WrestleMania weekend and went online and bought a lot more merchandise online than they usually do. Does that carry over to Q3 where, of course, there was no venue merchandise sales at all in Q3 either? And then Saudi Arabia, WWE would have been due to do a second Saudi Arabia event. Each Saudi Arabia event looks to be worth about $50 million for a company that's generating about a billion dollars on the year. They already had one Saudi event in, in February. They would have been due to have another one sometime in this year. They do two a year. That deal is good through 2027, two Saudi events a year. Uh, Vince reassured investors on the last call that if they can't do a second Saudi event in 2020, they'll just tack that. Don't worry, that, that event's not going away. That that extra event will just be tacked on to the end of the deal. Rest assured, uh, it looks very unlikely to me that there's going to be a second Saudi event in 2020. Uh, the data coming out of Saudi Arabia shows that uh, just looking at the same metric that I, uh, that I was talking about earlier, uh, COVID deaths per million average over the last seven days. Basically, things are about as bad in Saudi Arabia as they are in Canada, or actually a little worse. So things in Saudi Arabia are not nearly as bad as they are in the U.S., not even as bad as they are in the U.K. by a decent margin, but still deaths many many times more prevalent in Saudi Arabia than in a country like Japan. To use our factor of Japan a comparison that we used earlier, uh, in Saudi Arabia as of today, October 16th, Deaths in Saudi Arabia are 16 times, 16 times more prevalent in Saudi Arabia than in Japan. So, still quite present in Saudi Arabia. I I can't imagine how logistically this would work to get people out of the United States. I I, I just can't see it happening unless there's a vaccine suddenly, like very soon. And finally, I don't know if this will even come up or is this a moot point, At this point, but are we ever going to get? Are W investors ever going to get? I'm not a W investor, never have been. Are investors going to get a Middle East North Africa TV deal? Something that's been talked about, I think, now for well over a year and is, in fact, uh, the subject of a class action lawsuit where investors allege that they were misled by WB. Uh, That lawsuit is ongoing. Uh, My layman's assessment is that the plaintiffs don't have a, a great case. It'll be very difficult for them to argue what they have to argue. But basically, WWE was uh, its, its previous broadcaster in the Middle, Middle East, North Africa region was OSN. OSN decided to drop all its sports programming in 2019. WWE was uh, apparently negotiating with MBC, the Middle East Broadcasting Company, I think it is, which is owned in majority by the Saudi government, their friends. It seemed like a deal was agreed upon, quote-unquote, in principle, I think Berrios said on a, on a number of occasions. Uh, they were just working on finishing the deal. I think we've heard similar things even from Frank Riddick in the, in the post-Berrios era here. According to the complaint in the class action lawsuit, there is a pirate broadcaster, which is supported by the Saudi government, which is transmitting uh, W programming with no compensation to WWE. And that's undermining uh, any reason for MBC to pay WB for its programming. And that's why, if the, the uh, complaint is to be believed, that's why a deal hasn't gotten done. So there you have it. My EPS estimate for Q3 for WB is $0.15. Cents. That is well below the average analyst estimate. And when I say analyst, I mean stock analyst. But another analyst has gone $0.01 cent lower. At fourteen cents. I don't know who it is. Someone set me up with access to the uh, someone should set me up with access to the Bloomberg terminal so we can investigate. But I'm f- I'm feeling reassured that if there is at least one other analyst out there who is estimating such a low number as I or they're just reading Russell Lomics and have been convinced. But I would be mildly surprised. Well, well I do know that there are a couple of firms that subscribe. They're on the email alerts list. But anyway, that's all I have for this week I have some other thoughts Good thing I didn't preview them yeah, I've got to keep like a running list of, of things that I meant to get to That I didn't get to But are kind of evergreen And keep those in the pocket But anyway, thanks for listening If you're listening on a podcast app And if you're not already subscribed Subscribe If you like the program, tell somebody about it If you feel like supporting, go to patreon.com slash If you've got thoughts about What you just heard you can email me, Brandon, at RussellNonks.com. I appreciate everybody's support. I appreciate everybody listening and reading. Look for a written form of the Q3 preview that we just talked through coming up soon on RussellNonks.com. I just learned after all these years of using Google Sheets that there's a really nice way to embed charts from Google Sheets right into web pages. And you can hover the mouse over them. And when you hover the mouse, you see the data points. Oh, look out. Interactive charts coming soon to Russellomics.com. Get ready. Follow Russellomics on Twitter at Russellomics. Follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.